This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome to The Bunker Daily. I'm your host, Alex Andreu. Ever since the cognitive revolution, sapiens have been living in a dual reality. On the one hand, the objective reality of rivers, trees and lions. And on the other hand, the imagined reality of gods, nations and corporations. As time went by, the imagined reality became ever more powerful, so that today the very survival of rivers, trees and lions depends on the grace of imagined entities such as the United States or Google. Those are the words of Yuval Noah Harari, and they are as good an introduction as any to today's topic, brainwashing. My guest today is a psychoanalyst and historian, as well as an author and broadcaster, who has written the book on this, quite literally, Brainwashed, A New History of Thought Control. Welcome to The Bunker, Daniel Pick. Thank you very much. Daniel, why a new history? The title implies that we are capable of a better or at least different understanding of the advent of thought control. I think there's a long history of cultural interest in the possession of the mind. And so one could go back much earlier in history to find the first attempts to map this kind of territory. It wouldn't have been called brainwashing back in that period. But there, but in the 19th century, there were many writers who were interested in the irrational and in suggestion, ideas about hypnosis, fascination, um, group psychological processes. And then more recently, it's it's a new history in the sense that in the last quarter of the 20th century, a, a range of important books were written about brainwashing, some of them pioneering books that used freedom of information requests to find out more about the kinds of Cold War experiments that were done on the mind on both sides. But particularly, there was a spate of books about the CIA and its sponsorship of various mind control experiments that went under various esoteric headings like MK Ultra. So I'm revisiting a territory where there is already a rich literature. And some of that was also very much in the public eye after 9-11 and mm. techniques of so-called enhanced interrogation and the revival of interest then in the back history of that story in the Cold War, which was this both this sense of a battle for the mind and also a sense that that there were new potentially new techniques that could be studied in the human sciences and through the pharmaceutical revolution to break and manipulate the human mind. 
In my mind, brainwashing denotes a targeted process rather than something accidental or one-off. So how does that sort of process differ from what we might call disinformation? Yes, I mean, I think one needs to differentiate the, the, the range of words, disinformation and misinformation and propaganda and groupthink and captive minds well, and brainwashing and hidden persuasion and so on. However, it's I think it's striking in everyday conversation, the slippage in how people may use the term very differently. So I was struck in starting to delve into the history of ideas about brainwashing, quite how elastic that term is, that people may use it for the mildest form of persuasion, and then other people want to insist you know, on using it for much more systematic and nefarious techniques, whether it's by states or organizations or cults, to really possess mm. and direct the mind. So I think brainwashing for, for us, if we're being more precise, does signify the more extreme forms of technique and measure to control I mean, both both to decimate the mind, to damage or uh, undermine people's ordinary defensive internal structures and yes. capacities to break, but then to infiltrate ideas and to organize, uh, whether it's an ideology or set of beliefs or religious practices in this systematic way. And the, and the word uh, in that original sense of a kind of ferocious assault on the mind is a buzz phrase of the uh, the early Cold War. The word itself in English was coined in 1950. And it's from a Chinese root, which I think says quite a lot about where the, the concern was coming from, was emanating from Maoist China. Um, and, and as you say, yes, I, I think from what I read in your book, the most extreme form involves almost a wiping of what is there and the repopulating of the data rather than a sort of subtly nudging or altering the structures that are there. That's right. And you, you mentioned the fear of China and Maoism and that's, you know, this new massive sort of front in the global struggle between capitalism and communism in that period. The story of brainwashing is also backshadowed by the story of attempts to understand the psychology of fascism and Nazism mm, mm. Um, and the concept that, that was another buzz phrase of that period, totalitarianism. But by 1950, when the word is coined, yes, you, you've there's just been the creation of the People's Republic of China. And it's Edward Hunter, who was a journalist in the United States, who writes this newspaper article and subsequently articles and books, but about this perceived new kind of technology of mind control that he saw as emanating from China, this sense of some new present threat to populations, prisoners, and, and of course, captured soldiers, POWs, oh. is part of the original setup. And the sort of sense that people can be persuaded in various hidden clandestine ways to reverse their beliefs entirely. Yeah. Uh, it seems to me that in the 50s, when attention started turning to this thing, we would be talking almost exclusively about institutional actors. But nowadays, one could argue that multinational companies like Google or Meta, or even, you know, brands with extremely strong loyalty like Apple or Nike, they're the bigger players in this field today, aren't they? 
Well, yes. I mean, they're enormously consequential. And one of the chapters in my book is about the invention of this term groupthink. It's the same period as brainwashing is coined. Groupthink was a, a term coined by an American journalist, business journalist called William White, who went on later to write a famous book called Organization Man. And he worried that capitalism was being eroded from within by a kind of ever more homogenous corporate culture. It wasn't, again, what was happening in, in, you know, under Stalinism or previously under Hitler, but it was a kind of Western capitalist world of big offices, big tech, big pharma, big organizations, and so on, big bureaucracies in which people gradually, he thought, were becoming ever more synchronized mm-hmm. in their habits and beliefs. And he thought groupthink was a danger to the, the, actually the growth and development of capitalism itself. He wasn't an anti-capitalist, but he, he kind of offered it as a critique of this tendency for things to become ever more merged and uniform. And he thought it was a bit like a precursor of that sort of late 20th century idea of that you needed startups to sort of think outside the box, which is another kind of phrase that captures that anxiety about everyone kind of becoming a bit more the same. There was even a popular song in the early 1960s called Little Boxes that spoke to that idea of kind of executives who all basically had had the same education and all had the same training and all played on the same golf courses and drank martinis and everyone yes. became the same. I, I know it well and it's, it's a, a new version of it is now used to advertise a well-known credit card. How ironic. Um, when you write about groupthink, I, w- I was very interesting. You write, I may be paraphrasing, that such 1950s fears about middle ground consensus may seem antiquated, but actually they they sort of chart quite well with what we're observing today, for instance, around reaction to the pandemic on social media, that you do get that same echo chamber effect where people join a tribe and begin to think everything their tribe thinks as it were. Is is that a fair is that a fair assumption? I think so. And I think the anxiety now is that there are no common denominators to determine what's fact and fantasy. No. That the attack on institutions, whether it's universities or the legal system or um, you know, august broadcasting bodies that that offer some basis for a national conversation are ever more eroded. I mean, they were perhaps stronger in Britain than in the United States post-war to begin with. But the idea that in a way everyone has their own news channel, their own silo of news, and where you're fed ever more what appears to be ever more tailor-made news to fit your own preconceptions, but with no requirement to come out of that silo to address alternative representations of reality and the sort of manipulation of people's anxieties and fears and desires, but in this sort of ghettoized news environment. Yes. yes. So, so effectively, the danger has now become that I could brainwash myself basically, or or rather allow the algorithm to brainwash me inadvertently by saying, I really love X, I don't like Y, so it keeps giving me much more of X. Yes, exactly. So it's kind of, there's, a, there's an economic model to that of, of constantly feeding you things that are going to gratify your, oh. your preconceptions and so on, and, and that building up prejudices rather than 
challenging them. But one of the points that Packard makes in in his sort of critique of Madison Avenue and advertising in the 50s is the malleability of advertising. So on the one hand, you can play on people's fears about being different to make people worry that they're not keeping up with the Joneses in that expression. But the idea of a norm or an average that has to be satisfied. And on the other hand, you can give people a different kind of nudge and push, which is to be different. I mean, even think different later, of course, becomes a famous advertising slogan in its own right. So the idea of individuality can itself cynically be marketed to everybody um, (laughs) as another kind of illusion. So let me ask you one imponderable. Is social media a weapon in the hands of the brainwasher, or is it a weapon in the hands of he who does not want to be brainwashed? I'm struck that you get equal amounts of sort of wake-up sheeple entries and equal amounts of people complaining that everything is too woke now, which is a rather telling complaint. So on balance... What's your sense of where we are at the moment? I mean, I think that these are, are, are fundamental questions for the 21st century, aren't they? What's happened to well, the online environment and the early, more utopian aspirations of a kind of free, non-corporate marketplace of ideas and an educational resources and entertainment resources and communication that would be sort of unbridled and unmediated, which is now almost like a sick joke, given the corralling of opinion and and the way in which things have developed. But I think it's always double-edged. I mean, one, one can't just treat it uh, as a technology that one wants to be rid of, because the, the internet does offer, of course, enormous potential um, benefits, and we all know yeah. that. And I was very struck on the project that sort of was the context for my book called Hidden Persuaders, which was a team-based project at Birkbeck, University of London, funded by the Wellcome Trust, which was really an opportunity for a group of researchers to explore this history. We had the opportunity to invite young people, school children, teenagers in London, to make video films about their own experiences and what the word brainwashing and groupthink and hidden persuasion meant to them. And I was very struck that that, that these uh, um, teenagers made films often with great anguish about their experience of Facebook and Instagram and TikTok and all the rest, and, and both what it offered and the kind of constant addictive quality of it and the sort of normative pressure to behave in certain mm-hmm. ways, it's both peer pressure. It's not just necessarily pressure from above, from some big brother kind of Orwellian kind of figure. It's yeah. also a kind of cultural pressure from a peer group of, of having to participate and say yes to it and behave and post in certain ways. So I think it's very eloquent about about this dilemma that you're describing. And I think what we need is, is of course, reform of the internet and you know um, various things you know which have been proposed, including by the, the, the original architects of the internet to to try to cr- to recreate an environment that is less corporatized, less manipulated, well, addresses fake news and and the rest. But but this is of course absolute burning issue for both politics, culture, society, and our time. I couldn't escape 
thinking of the term influencer the way it's used today as I was reading your book. It it just seemed like almost a reclaiming of a negative term to, to sort of make it hip and cool. But actually, the function is still the same, isn't it? It is to subtly suggest to you that this is the thing you want in your life. Yes, and that's a, a kind of new iteration or a, a different chapter in a story that g- goes back to the 1950s of of these critics and analysts of advertising noticing how film stars or celebrities were increasingly being used in advertising to sort of manage brands. Well, well, that, yeah. You know, having a film star smoke a particular brand of cigarette or drive a particular car or wear a particular garment, you know, it was realized that fandom and crazes around personalities could also be used directly to sell products. So that, that would be an earlier chapter where Hollywood and Madison Avenue and also product placement and these sorts of questions were already being explored in that post-war literature on the advertising industry. Yes. Um, what about nudge theory, which I, I would I would think of as sort of propaganda adjacent as a as a concept. And the reason I'm interested in it is because obviously it was recruited during the pandemic to good effect and for good reasons. And I note that in the book you mentioned the example of post-war Germany, where effectively the West had to go in and re-brainwash almost a generation of Germans who had who had grown up with the Nazi party to sort of un-Nazify them using basically the same methods. So I, I guess what I'm asking is, are those tools always wicked or are they relatively amoral and depend on how you use it. Can you brainwash people for good, as it were? Well, hopefully it's not quite commensurate with the kinds of sinister techniques we're talking about, but it's it's interesting that you mention denazification. The phrase that was used then was re-education rather than Certainly not yeah. brainwashing. And and that was a sort of liberal Western democratic project to re-educate a generation who had grown up with the Fuhrer. And there were all kinds of interesting experimental projects in the late 1940s. And then that term re-education takes on a quite different you know, meaning in the context of Maoism and so on. And suddenly these same you know, liberal enthusiasts for denazification are saying, <laughs> ringing alarm bells, that people can be corralled and re-educated into communism and Maoism. Um, you also have in the 20th century the development of behaviorism, a whole s- a different set of thinking about people's behavior and how that can be changed for better or mm-hmm. for worse. And, and it, as you say, I mean, you know, the aim may be to help people escape from terribly self-harming behaviors, Mm. whether it's addictions, you know, or driving too fast or drinking and driving or, or, you know, unsafe sex in the era of HIV in the late 20s or now, you know, safe practice around COVID and so on. And, and, And governments, including in Downing Street, did introduce behavioral units to advise on the best way to nudge people in a benign way. That was the aim. Mm -hmm. Now, I want to ask about conflict and the battle for the information space, because I think we've seen it very, very clearly 
with the Russian invasion of Ukraine and more recently with what's going on in Israel, there's been a real battle by the two sides to sort of claim top dog in that information space, to say, we are the good guys, align yourself with us. Um, do you see a lot of the techniques playing out in, in that sense? I mean, look, I mean, there are very particular things. It would be another podcast, wouldn't it, to look in detail yes. at Russia, Ukraine, or Israel, Gaza today. But the broader point you're making about the battle of ideas and information flow is a key thing. In a way, the t history of 20th century warfare has been one in which public opinion has mattered ever, ever more. I mean, all the way back to the First World War, really, and th the role of propaganda. So I think the history of the last century and more has been one in, in which opinion formation on the home front and abroad, you know, the use of propaganda, sometimes the use of dirty tricks to, mm. uh, to demoralize the enemy is part of the history of, of the world wars. And now in the new information age we're in, of course, these issues are absolutely critical. And one thing that one of the kind of, you know, key figures in my book, a kind of hero in my story at the end is Hannah Arendt, the great political philosopher yes. of that post-war period who thinks about totalitarianism. Her argument is that in a way for totalitarianism to flourish, it's not that you have to convince everyone in the Orwellian sense of brainwashing. What you have to do is completely destroy people's capacity to tell the difference between truth yeah. and lies, fiction, fantasy, and reality. And that kind of blitzkrieg on truth, when where people are dazed and don't know what to believe, is also part of our current, you know, tragic reality in which there Very are much. not only to persuade people, but also to make people so cynical that anything can be believed in a way techniques of depoliticization is one of the things. And we saw it also in the in the American elections in 2016, but the attempt to disenfranchise through making people feel it was all so hopeless. That's, that's absolutely right. When the conduct is indefensible, the only strategy becomes to suggest that they're doing it too. And I think we're seeing it play out actually with Biden being now indicted, or rather a process of indictment being opened. That will never come to anything because there's zero evidence for it. But its purpose is to say, well, you know, he might be indicted with loads of stuff, but look at, look yeah. at this side here. They're at it too. And if nobody, if there are no commonly agreed fact checkers, even on the most basic facts, like the size of the crowd at the inauguration of a president, and one person would say it's the biggest ever, and the photographic evidence doesn't mean it, I mean that's in a way part of the problem. And the the yeah. you know, as we know with notorious organisations, Cambridge Analytica, the, the the way in which Facebook has operated in this sphere. I mean, of course, one has to be very worried about, and this idea also yeah. of moral equivalence used in the most cynical way. And Hannah Arendt, you know, in a way treats politics as key, but politics is an achievement. It's not to be taken for granted. Politics in the sense of an actual space in which there can be deliberative mm. debate and consideration and critique and, and sources of information and education. These are the spaces that are also ferociously under attack in our current reality that, that have to be defended. Okay, and so my final question is, looking forward, I teeter between 
thinking it's going to be some awful hellscape, you know, because you can see the tools foaming, you know, with AI and targeted advertising, especially targeted political advertising and generative video and audio and things like that. You can genuinely see a situation where people are bombarded with their own reality, as it were, where we lose any idea of shared values or facts even. But I can also sense in me that I am becoming more sophisticated about seeing the buttons being pressed and the strings being pulled. And so I have moments of optimism where I think maybe we are adapting faster than I give ourselves credit in my darker moments. What, what are your thoughts on that? I think the fear of technology taking over, which is so contemporary now for us, has a long history and different versions back through the ages. One thinks of the Frankenstein myth, or just right. over a century ago, Rossum's Universal Robots, a story by Carl Capek, which was about these machines taking over in a kind of definitive battle with the human species. So it, there's a long history, but there are also, of course, entirely new contingent circumstances now with the AI revolution that we do indeed need to take extremely seriously. And on the other hand, I think as you're suggesting, we're not just passive sponges. Uh, we're not just the recipients. We also have a capacity for agency as citizens and as groups and as communities, and that there is a history of fights like the, the fight against big tobacco in the, in the later 20th century, you know, it wasn't just a one-way street. In the end, restrictions, public health measures were introduced, at least in the West. So there's always, in a way, a, an interaction, I think. And, and one, one has to sort of, in a way, um, look at it, both the, the common techniques, whether it's in commerce, business, politics, you know, cults that, that are about brainwashing or manipulating or corralling opinion. And on the other hand, I think one of my points in the book is to think each story is different. So it's not that we're just sort of in a way um, widgets or in a, some sort of sausage factory here. Yes, yes. Even, in, even in these most hideous stories from the Cold War, there are individual stories to be explored. So I, I look at the, some of the POWs in the end of the Korean War, who were the eye of the storm about brainwashing 21 American GIs who chose to go and live in Mao's China when they were released from captivity. And they became kind of, you know, a part of, of sort of political footballs. They must have been yeah. brainwashed, it was said. Um, and that leads to movies like The Manchurian Candidate about kind of zombie assassins and so on. But actually, when you look at those 21 men and you actually hear their stories and get, look into it, you know, it's much more complicated. They had more agency. They, 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 it's much more interesting and individual why they went to China. Some yeah. of them also came back to the US and then had a torrid time back in, in, in the States. But, but I want to sort of treat it both as, as a, a shared history and also to hold on to the idea we are individuals with some capacity to fashion even these labels like brainwashed and groupthink or PTSD or some of the other labels, Stockholm syndrome. There are many stories to tell about human experience, you know, not just some homogenous story to tell. Daniel Pick, thank you so much for a great conversation. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed talking to you. Thanks very much. Brainwashed, a new history of thought control is out now. Remember, if you get value from our work, you should support our work. And you can do so from as little as £3 a month 
on the funding platform Patreon. Just search for Bunker Podcast Patreon. I leave you with the words of William Peter Blatty in The Exorcist. We may ask what is relevant, but anything beyond that is dangerous. The demon is a liar. He will lie to confuse us, but he will also mix lies with the truth to attack us. The attack is psychological and powerful, so don't listen. Remember that. Do not listen. This is Alexandreou in the bunker, saying over and out. The Bonker was written and presented by Alex Andrei. The producer was Eliza Davis-Beard, with audio production by me, Simon Williams. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>